Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. How many of you who rely so heavily on traditional inventory, things such as signage, uniform branding, home game activations, tickets and hospitality, would struggle if you could no longer offer them to your sponsors? What about if you are at a rights holder who enjoys long and regular periods of sustained awareness and engagement, like an annual 20 plus week season? Would your job be tougher if you couldn't rely on that high profile regularity? How would you even approach your job without those things? It's an interesting hypothetical for most of you, but a reality for those like Ian Sargent and Paralympics New Zealand. Welcome to episode 54 of Inside Sponsorship. I'm your host, Daniel Oyston, and as always, it's great to know that there are so many people out there all over the world at all levels and at rights holders, brands, and agencies who tune into the show. It's especially awesome when we hear from some of those listeners so we can give them a shout out, but alas, I haven't heard from anyone since the last show. So please, I feel lonely and we need validation. So get in contact through sponsor.net or LinkedIn. Just drop us a line and say hi and let us know where you work. I will, however, give a public thanks and a shout out to Hugh Rogan, Strategic Partnerships Manager at IMG based in Melbourne, Australia. Hugh has had a shout out in the past, but on this occasion, I had a contact who asked if I knew anyone at IMG in Sydney who might be willing to have a coffee and chat about careers. And so I reached out to Hugh and he didn't hesitate in helping to make an introduction to the right person. Great job, Hugh. Very much appreciated. You're a legend. In 1944, at the request of the British government, Dr Ludwig Gutmann opened a spinal injuries centre at the Stoke Mandeville Hospital in Great Britain and, in time, rehabilitation sport evolved to recreational sport and then to competitive sport. On the 29th of July 1948, the day of the opening ceremony of the London 48 Olympic Games, Dr Gutmann organised the first competition for wheelchair athletes, which he named the Stoke Mandeville Games, a milestone in Paralympics history. They involved 16 injured servicemen and women who took part in archery. In 1952, Dutch ex-servicemen joined the movement and the International Stoke Mandeville Games were founded. Now, these games later became the Paralympic Games that we know today, and they first took place in Rome in 1960, featuring 400 athletes from 23 countries, and since then, they've taken place every four years. In 1976, the first Winter Games in Paralympics history were held in Sweden and, as with the Summer Games, have also taken place every four years. As I said at the top of the show, organisations like Paralympics New Zealand don't boast a plethora of traditional benefits, nor can they rely on long and regular seasons. But that doesn't matter to Ian Sargent, Commercial Manager at Paralympics New Zealand, and in fact, when he joins us later on in the show, he outlines how he believes it actually makes them and helps them do better work. But first, our MD, Mark Thompson, joins us on the show to discuss a very interesting topic and not one that is talked about a lot, and that is the sponsorship landscape in terms of understanding third-party influencers who could be vital to success. Here's Mark. Mark Thompson, welcome back for another episode. (laughs) Hey, mate. How are you? I'm well. Now, the topic today is about understanding the, the sponsorship landscape and... In my preparation, I didn't know what to ask because you've got the people that, that want to get sponsored and you've got the brands doing 
the sponsoring. That's about it. Thanks yeah. for joining us. No worries. And uh, you are the, the typical outside-in <laughs> vision of sponsorship. For the good of the show, I had to lead <laughs> with my chin. So yes. we are going to talk about uh, the wider sponsorship landscape, aren't we? Yeah, mate. I mean, from the outside-in, it does look pretty simple. And really, only those that are at the coal face that have got their hands dirty and worked in it. There's some people within an organisation that think it's that simple. There's board members that think it's that simple. <laughs> um, there's, there's all sorts of people. Not the ones that listen to this podcast, though. <laughs> you know, people think that rights holders just go out, they meet with companies, they pitch them, deals are negotiated, they're done, um, and everyone moves forward, cash goes in the bank, and, and then you know, in the off-season, people sit there with their feet up waiting for next year to roll around. The only way that would be more a fairy tale if it started with once upon a time and finished, they lived happily ever after. Because yeah, it's not the case, is it? No, well, hopefully if you are, if you are doing your job right, happily ever after is the ending. But, <laughs> but yeah, not once upon a time. Because, it, because it's a, for, this, is, this is a, uh, it's actually an evolved thing. So once upon a time, it was like that. Yeah, right. Okay, so we are going to look at the wider uh, sponsorship landscape, but specifically those third parties. So not just focusing on the rights holders and the brands who are doing the sponsoring. We're going to look at the third parties who influence, uh, enable, maybe sometimes even hinder the relationships there. Let's walk through them. Who are they? Look, mate, and there's heaps of ways of breaking this down. So I've just simplified it as far as I can for the audience just to, to, to knock it out in, you know, within 24 hours but um you know from 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 all the people we work with at sponsor um that one thing is becoming more and more evident to us wherever you are in the world things are done differently but though it doesn't matter where you are those that do it really well they they actually have a really good understanding of their strengths their weaknesses and then they engage parties that have strengths in the areas of their weaknesses to make sure they're strong all over the place which to be fair is pretty much how managers all over the world are taught to manage correct exactly right and that's why you know some people i had a conversation with somebody recently who didn't want to use an agency to help sell a property because they didn't want to give up 20 percent commission and i said to the guy well have you got any prospects and he said no and i said well how much would you pay to land a deal tomorrow versus the stress of eight months down the track. And he said, oh, wow, I, I couldn't put a number on it. I said, well, you could put 20% on it <laughs> and there you go. Yeah, or you could find somebody yeah. and not make as much as that agency might make more plus their 20% and then yes. everybody's a winner, right? Exactly right. But And there's lots of stuff that goes around it. But, but I've kind of broken it down to four um, third-party groups um, that sort of sit around the edges and sometimes right in the middle of sponsorship programs um you know in there's some broad but easy to explain sort of groups here so the first one are internal influences so you know these are the people at your talent um that are at your disposal such as your athletes if you're a rights holder or a, or or you know a, an artist if you're in the entertainment industry or you know success success stories in you know the community or charitable organizations but more importantly, um, they're also your board and your ex- mm. executive of your organisation. They're internal influences that aren't sitting between the transaction of the brand and the rights holder. They, they sit around the edge to help the relationship. And enable the right way can really help you. 
Well, they can help with introductions. They can help, you know, the, the old board additive that I, I love and I always talk about is give, get or get off. It works really well in not-for-profit um, and, and charitable organisations. It, it should play just as um, well in, into any other sort of board environment these days. And, and, you know, that's their role. But then your talent, they help tell stories. They help provide engaging and emotional content. Um, and then, you know, the second group of people are your agencies. And so agencies play a big role in sponsorship. Both sides of the fence, they, they help find, they help keep, they help manage, they help, you know, sort of activate. But correctly utilising agencies and what they provide can literally be the difference in profit and loss or success and failure. Mm. Because some, some agencies are brilliant at what they do and you could not hire the talent that these guys can bring to the table. Very good. So internal influencers, agencies. I've, bro- I've broken this one out. It could fit into agencies, but... I've called this speciality services. So, you know, they can come from within or outside of your organisation and that's why I broke it out because what we're talking about is um, people that are vital to the success of your program but they provide a special service like a graphic designer, um, a printer, a merchandiser, digital um, expertise, things like that that nowadays we're seeing more and more of inside an organisation. But they're a special service that are, are required to make the partnership sing. Let's sit around the outside. And, and it's not always – sometimes you'll be lucky and a brand will have those specialty services internal themselves. Oh, we've got a graphic design or a marketing mm. department that can help with collateral, collateral or they've already got relationships in place. But you shouldn't assume that because when it comes time to activation, if they don't, yep. you're just going to be on the back foot, right? That's right. And, and But people have access to people. You know, That's why they're part of the, the whole landscape. Is the next one your favourite one? Yeah, well, it's the newest, <laughs> my favourite for obvious reasons, um, but uh, technology. So it's new to the space, but, but technology is now established as something that rights holders and brands can't do without if they want to see success over all their internal functions and, in fact, sometimes their external now as well. And you know those that are leading in best practice sponsorship and making the most of technology to work together through the whole process from start to finish you know, to deliver return on investment, to deliver a return on objectives, to track, to measure those, to report on them, but also to communicate and you know basically protect the organisations against knowledge loss from staff turnover and all those types of things that um, sit around the edge and are negatives when things change mm. in a person-to-person relationship. So it's a good intro to those four third parties, yep. internal influencers, agencies, specialty services and technologies. How about we talk about what each one may specifically bring to the table so that the listeners get a little bit of an understanding of whether, oh, I should go and look at that area more or, no, I think I'm okay there. Well, yeah, generally I'm on a pretty strict time limit with this show with you. So I've, uh, we, we won't go... Somewhere as, better to be. No, we time. won't go deeper than we have to <laughs> for, for the time on this. But even on the surface, there's, there's heaps of things that need to be understood within those four groups. Um, you know, what roles they, they do and can play for an organisation. So, number one, what was it again? Internal influencers. Internal influencers. So, you know, the talent they provide, they provide the engagement, they f- provide the faces to drive the emotional attachment. Um, they're also, you know, can be vital in prov- to providing asset availability, which is sold, such as appearance time or... Or um, just sponsoring that player. We yeah. see that, don't we? Yeah, use of IP, mate. That's mm. most, of, most of the time the IP involves a collective of of athletes in a sporting context 
Um, your board and executive's role is to unequivocally support the commercial goals, targets, and activity in any way they can add value. So that is give, that is get, that is advise, that's support. Um, and one of the key functions of the board is to, to support the operational practice rather than to dictate it. So for me, what I said before, that give, get, or get off rings true when you, when you think about it that, in that way because the skills that a board member brings if in a supportive role can be stronger than in a dictatorial role for a, for a sponsorship program. Yeah, it's stronger because it makes the employee feel empowered and supported and, and enabled to go and do their job bigger and better rather than just being reactive to what a board member is telling them to do. Exactly right. All right, number two, agencies. So there's This heap, is going to be a big one. Mate, well, I've, I've somehow broken it down to five different bullet points, um, but there's, there's many types of agencies. Some offer a broad range of services, and it depends where you are in the world. So here in Australia, we find a lot of our agencies are multi-purpose agencies. They, they're full service. They try and provide, you know, your activation, your sales, your sort of engagement. The management, management even. Yep. Even as well, valuation as well. Um, they, they kind of try and be in that one thing. That's because of the landmass of Australia. That's because of our the size of our sporting landscape versus the commercial landscape this you'll be right attitude we'll sort it out yeah that's right somebody else can do it um but then when you move into other territories around the world that that sponsor operates in we've found that you know one of the big things we learned when moving our business out of australia into especially the uk is the different roles that different agencies play and they actually support each other to create a really strong ecosystem and that's something i think we can learn down here but now, the first one is a sales agency. So they help you find partners. And more often now, they, they actually work with specific industries or brands to source opportunities. So, you know, we've got some close friends of our organization that, that actually have brands they work for. And the brand will come out going, okay, we want a new property. They go find that property. They negotiate the sale. But they also do try and find opportunities that are out there with new brands that they don't work with and, and try and sell but that's it that's the start and finish of their relationship is that that opportunity uh, understanding the opportunity understanding what the objectives of the brand are doing the deal and walking away then the next one is the activation agency so these people help mostly they work with brands um if, if you're a large events-based business or you run huge game days you will have an activation agency as a rights owner as well and they help to activate partnerships in line with those set objectives um very important to realizing value especially on the roo side of the fence we have event agencies so you know these people are often the ones responsible putting together executing entire events um or specific pieces of content at events so think think um so even somebody like img right have a huge business all of these different functions within their business are broken down into separate businesses. They're mm. not actually separate divisions. They're actually separate businesses. And so, you know, their event business is a different business to their, you know, athlete management business and so on and so forth. Now, the next one is, you know, something that you've got a lot more experience in than me is the marketing agency. So that we're you know, working on both sides of the fence. They're helping with creative, brand elements, um, positioning. Marketing. How it fits into maybe a brand's wider marketing. Exactly right. Yep. But, you know, they're the storytelling people as well. The activation guys tell stories, but these guys are the, are the core of the storytelling, um, you know, along with the next group that we talk about. But these guys are talking about membership programs. If you're a, if you're a, a, a rights owner, they're talking about 
um, you know, how to use sponsorship as a strategy if you're a brand, yeah. those types of things. And, and not completely divorced from activation agencies, but really trying to focus on that emotion and, you know, like you said, memberships and being part of the brand and trying to tie that together with the brand that's sponsoring and the rights holders brand and, and trying to take people on that journey, not just at one activation at a game, but over the, the length of the contract. Yeah, and they will cross over into that mm. activation and sponsorship selection as well, these guys, um, because they're, they're, they're working more closely with the brands. And then you've got your PR. Now, I think PR agencies, so working on the brand side, positioning the brand element, PR agencies are important sideline that can help drive promotion of achievements in sponsorship. Massively under underutilised by rights holders, though, I think. So, you know, rights holders should be positioning themselves in you know business press and all sorts of areas that actually endear them to potential opportunities down the line and people to understand who they are and what they bring outside of what you just see on the television and, and because pr st- pr agencies quite often tell stories yeah. and that ties into the emotion people love the stories about what they can what people are doing and and the journey they're going on and the challenges and then the triumphs so pr agencies play i think and play a huge role Yeah, exactly right. But also, you know, when you're taking out, you know, what we spoke about on the last episode around um, the opportunity to sell on emotions not there and you've got to sell on facts, PR agencies will have a a backlog of different opportunities they've pushed into the market, not just about your performance and your growth and your success stories, but also about the core business that sits underneath that and why it's a solid platform because that safety is what's actually going to help influence decisions. Mm, Good point. So internal influencers are a list as long as our arm of agencies, different types (laughs) of agencies, specialty services. Yeah. This is going to be long too, Sean. It is. It's a, and because Where do you draw the line? There is no line. The cleaner. It's a mixed group of people, right? Um, so let's just we'll bundle a few up, right? Well, let's just get to three bullet points. So the first one I had is strategic consultants. That's about as broad as you broad. can get, right? But uh, helping both sides of the fence with their sponsorship strategy. So it's a broad term to fit the broad category. Yeah, and that's okay, I think, because sometimes people need help from consultants or specialty services, and they're not 100% sure what they need help with. I've been in uh, more meetings than I could possibly count where people are saying, well, we think we want to do this, and then half an hour, 45 minutes later, you've unpacked what they're actually trying to achieve, and you've said to them, well, you know, have you considered do- you know, doing X, Y, Z to achieve that? Now, oh, yeah, but if you know that you want social or branding or, or some specialty service like that, then you can go straight to that person. But if you're not sure, go and have a, con- uh, a conversation with a more broad strategic consultant and let them guide you. You don't have to work with them going forward, but let them guide you in that initial instance. But And also, mate, the, we're looking at this in a silo. In realistic terms, you're going to be looking at, it, at this in as part of your entire ecosystem, mm. which is what this whole blog's about. You've got to piece it all mm. together and think about it in other contexts of who else is involved in the of the environment. And, and that leads us to the digital consultants as well. So very important current day to provide strategy, execution, and measurement, um, which are, you know, currently the buzz thing, the most arguably the most attractive and vital elements of a sponsorship recap and review is when a sponsor is assessing, you know, assessing the effectiveness of a partnership is the success of the digital elements of that partnership nowadays so you know um large organizations will have a quasi internal agency that play this role you know some of the really big 
sporting organisations out there will have their internal people that play this for the brands as well. Um, whereas others will be, you know, spe- specialists in this area. And, and we're talking about, you know, people and, and actually more and more those internal agencies is kind of coming and going already. Mm. And so think of those the, the guys we work with down here in Australia, Green Room Digital, excellent what they do, very hands-on, very consultative, but they, they just they deliver and they, they, they get it right. And it's really important to understand how to get it right in that space. Um, and, you know, they're, they're actually now operating out of the UK as well, which is exciting for them. And then the third one is your measurement services. So these are... You know, something that we find very important and valuable given what we do within SponSurve. Yeah. Um, but measurement, it, it can be done by yourself. Um, and, and, you know, we, we've seen some d- different individuals out there that help talk through pe- people through that. Um, but when operating in larger markets, you need to be able to benchmark yourself against competition and other markets that your sponsors are active in. So, you know, measurement services, especially the big guys, you know, Nielsen Sports, Cantar, those people. Um, the only way of getting large-scale benchmark reporting and using quantifiable currency is to be able to compare against large data sets. Mm. That's, that's it. There's a sample size of one is always very dangerous. A sample size of one or a sample size of one sport or a sample mm. size of one territory, it's, it's still you're just comparing. Or one relationship in a rights holder. You know what? If we were to benchmark the success of Daniel Oyston's oh, um, podcast hosting against the previous hosts of Inside Sponsorship Podcast, the benchmark is just comparing you versus yourself, right? Of course, you're going to get better over time. Do I win still? Well, at the moment, you're getting better (laughs) over time. Under review, though. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, but portions of the roles are commonly played within the organisations themselves anyway because you can measure whatever you want to measure, but you've actually got to measure meaningful, you know, target-oriented things. And the other thing is, too, measurement services are, you know, maybe five, ten years ago, only the top guys really had access to it, could afford it. Now, more people seem to have access to it. So if you haven't moved down that path or you've been putting it off for a while, consider that the other partners of your brand are potentially providing this information, which allows the brands to make a more informed decision about whether there is return on investment and whether they should renew. Well, and also what it's doing is it's helping make sense of data for for sales and partnerships teams around selling factual information and reporting on factual information rather than it felt like felt good. Mm. And and you know that's a really good segue because undoubtedly those services will be moving in to point number four. Back to your favourite topic, technologies. Mm. <laughs> so the emergence of specialised technologies for sport is never ending. And it can become a minefield. So, you know, you've got CRMs, you've got ticketing and membership programs, you've got fan engagement, staff engagement and happen- happiness, customised apparel. Onla- yeah, um, online stores. Customer success. And for me, the most important, obviously, is a specialised sponsorship management technology. Made it, when you, If you're sitting in a seat as a commercial director or somebody and all these things are coming at you, like, where do you start? Do you draw a line to say nobody? Do you only go through referrals how do you procure it there's a, there's a couple of things that kind of sit underneath that but but you know rather than looking at what each can provide you um you know we, we're going to sort of start to look like around what is important in how to choose the right technology because there's so many different technologies out there that we could talk here for an hour right but 
the most important point when, when technology selection is that you must have a pain point that can or is being set, solved by the technology. So if you've got a, you know, a, a fantastic fan engagement program that runs and people engage with and your fans are interacting with and there's no drop dip in engagement and it's actually growing, that's not painful. It doesn't sound painful to it me. It doesn't sound painful unless you've got the budget and all the other areas are solved and that's the one thing that hasn't up, you know, adopted some technology technology to get better. You know that that's a different kettle of fish, but but you've got to be solving a pain point, and and it's important to mention that mention that finding a technology that's the best of breed across all features within one platform is just not possible because you've, you people are going to specialise in one area. People have been trying to create systems that fix everything since the first computer was ever made, and it yeah. just doesn't happen. Well, I call that a unicorn, right? But it's um it's it really it looks pretty but it's not going to happen yeah. because you, you people are going to be special. you keep looking for it you're not going to find one well, they're going to be specialists at one thing they do hmm. and then anything they do outside of that one thing is going to kind of be subpar hmm. right so instead of you know looking at stuff like that look at specifically designed and developed and it, and that can interact and engage within your existing platforms to help have a sort of seamless up application within your business but also provide the upside but i think the listeners need to be mindful too that there are certain areas of technology that will say things like yes yes buy us and then when it's in there we can we'll be able to make it do this i don't think i've ever seen that work well no well some providers will lead you in the wrong direction so deliberately well for self self yeah okay right yeah so it's it's not deliberate it's almost um through a lack of understanding and knowledge of that pain point that they're looking to solve. Or what else is out there in the market. Yeah. Well, okay, let's look at it as a sponsorship from a sponsorship vision, right? If, if there's lots of people out there and other platforms that say, yeah, we can manage sponsorship, but they don't understand what we've just run through in this mm. podcast of what actually goes into managing sponsorship and delivering success and reporting on success, like in the last episode, to be able to provide a meaningful um, service to be able to, and technology so you know you, you've pretty much got to find something that fits for your own ecosystem and not listen to the others but actually get an understanding yourself of what's happening and at the end of the day adopting it's going to be unavoidable um, but if you if you go down the path of working with category experts so people that are you know experts in ticketing experts in fan engagement experts in staff engagement and happiness yep nowadays there's so many different applications that are that can all work together and fit together through integrations it's going to be much more um beneficial for your business than trying to find an end-to-end one-size-fits-all and, and all those all those programs that integrate with the apis and talk to each other and all that yep. sort of stuff can be way more nimble and focused on developing their area yep. rather than parts of a, a larger system that aren't quite right just sort of being left in the, the corner to fester and never really solving your problem but most of us out there already have pre-built apis anyway mm. so you can it's just a it's not that big a deal to plug it in so Excellent. So understanding all of that now, how's that set us up for the future? What's it look like? Um, look, I mean, people are going to, uh, are all looking for speed of, you know, work and decision-making success. They don't want to make the wrong calls. So I think the future lays with a mixture of inbuilt specialist staff internal to your organisation 
selecting and using the right technologies, and then importantly, growing the use of agencies. I, I see the use of agencies increasing as, you know, especially these specialised agencies that are bringing cool technologies to the table, the insights they're going to bring, the trends they're going to be able to bring to you, feedback into you as a, as a sponsorship specialist, as a, either a brand or a rights owner to do really cool things in your job without you having to try and do things that aren't your special area as well. Um, and then collaboration is going to be the key when looking at your third-party ecosystem. And, and while that, it's never really changed, it's actually never been that visible to the outside world. And the diversity of our space, the emergency of technology in particular, means that if, if you want success, then collaboration is probably the most important thing. Very good. So if you want to read through that in detail, just head along to sponsor.net, head to the blog section. Probably a fantastic opportunity to read through the blog and get a good understanding there and then have a look back through those headings and say, where could I improve? Where could I get some some help? Where might I be lacking? Because it's a pretty comprehensive list, right? Yeah. Thanks for joining us. You're going on a trip soon? Must be a week or so. Sunday. Yeah. This week? Yeah, this Sunday. Four yeah. or five sleeps. Right. To, um, Tell the listeners where you're going so they can prepare for your arrival. Yeah. <laughs> well, a short period of time. I'm just um, going to the States, just swinging by um, New York to to see a couple of um, guys, our, our lawyers and, and things in America. And Sounds then, fun. Yeah, that'll be a good trip. <laughs> um, but then off to South by Southwest in, oh, in Austin, good. which will be excellent. So, um every day getting the updates of the new attendees and and speakers that are being announced and all the other fun engaging opportunities like going to bed early and drinking water and lots of exercise fantastic well plenty of exercise definitely (laughs) is because i I assume that the demand for uber and lyft and all those uh, Mm. taxis are going to be pretty high so i'm assuming i'm going to be up for the seven kilometer walk to and from the hotel every day and uh, from America to, you going to England? Nah, just back home and then um, not back to the UK after Easter. Very good. Yep. All right. Safe travels. Cheers, mate. In the introduction, I posed some hypothetical questions about how you would approach your job and how hard it would be if you could no longer offer some of those traditional benefits to your sponsors or rely on long periods of high visibility, such as long annual seasons. While they are interesting hypothetical questions for you, those situations are actually a reality for Ian Sargent, commercial manager at Paralympics New Zealand, and you'll learn about how he and the organisation manage those types of situations and much, much more about their work as we go inside sponsorship at Paralympics New Zealand. Here's Ian. Ian Sargent, welcome to the show. Thanks, Daniel. Pleasure to be with you. We always kick off with a few easy icebreaker questions. Well, they should be easy, just to help the audience get to know Ian a little bit better. Ian, if you could be anyone else in the world for a day, who would you be and why? I, uh, I rack my brains because I'm a, I'm a keen sportsman and uh, could, could name a whole number of idols that I would, I'd always, as a kid, sort of wanted to be or dreamed that I might be one day, but... I'm going to answer this quite specifically and say that I'd be Vincenzo Nibali on the 24th of July, 2014. And uh, if you don't know, he's an Italian cyclist. Um, and that date in 2014 was when he won uh, stage 18 of the Tour de France that year. And uh, it's significant to me because four days earlier, um, I completed the exact same stage in an event called the Etape de Tour, uh, which was 145 kilometres in the Pyrenees. Um, and truthfully, the hardest thing I've ever done. It was uh, 
is an incredible challenge. It took me eight hours and 15 minutes to, to scale the Col de Tumalay and then the, the mountaintop finish that, that, um, that followed a, after that one. Um, but four days later, Vincenzo Nibali did it in the race, won it cleanly, um, well ahead of anyone else, and did it in a time of four hours and four minutes. So to be him on that day for a day, uh, that would be pretty epic. That's an outstanding answer and very specific with the exact date. I don't think we've ever had that before. Great answer. Ian, <laughs> second icebreaker question is, what was your first ever job? There's, uh, I had the usual kind of paper uh, around mowing neighbours' lawns, that kind of stuff. But my first real job was at Rebel Sport, which is a, a sports retail store in New Zealand. Um, I got a, a job as a retail assistant in the golf department um, when I was about 15 and did that part-time uh, when I was at school and then additional hours in the summer holidays. But I, I think back, and it was probably the... Um, even at that stage for me, it was a desire to work in sport was why I'd gone for that role um, and had to, you know, persist for quite a, a number of months to get it because it relied on, you know, a vacancy coming up and there's been a new store that opened near where I live. But once I found myself stacking golf shoes and, you know, arranging the way that golf tees were displayed on a shelf, um, it, it began to challenge that working in sport kind of dream that I had. So... It's uh, maybe a little bit of a miss, but hey, I'm, I'm still doing it, so can't complain. <laughs> Very good. So look, the 2008 Winter Paralympics, at the time we record this, for those people that might be listening six, 12 months later, just found the podcast, the Winter Paralympics is about two weeks from kicking off. How's the excitement levels going in the office and, and around the team? Yeah, it's exciting, Daniel. It's um, yeah, certainly building up very quickly and it's, it's come around quickly as well um, from the summer games which were for us Rio in uh, September of 2016 um, to think we're now on the, the eve of another big event is, uh, is pretty monumental so yeah very excited um, we've got a, a pretty small team going to, uh, to represent New Zealand it's just three Paralympians or para-athletes um, we had another who was selected but um, had to withdraw, withdraw through injury uh, but yeah, it's coming together and they are very um, competent um, athletes that have all um, won medals previously or uh, been on the podium at World Cups. So we've got some, some high hopes. We have a target of two medals for the Games and uh, we've got the Games um, team operation manager and the chef de mission they actually leave tonight for Pyeongchang. So it's all, uh, it's all getting real pretty quickly. Outstanding. Fingers crossed for uh, a few medals. Hopefully you get your targets too, hopefully you get three and hopefully they're evenly spread so everybody comes home with one. Ian, you started out at Rebel Sport, still working in sport. Uh, give, talk us through your work history leading up to your role now at Paralympics New Zealand. Sure. I mean, uh, finished up um, school, went off down to Dunedin to Otago University, which is um, one of the leading institutions in New Zealand. And there I, um, I was studying sport and sport business, essentially. Um, but I got a, a, a part-time job there working in, as a sport and recreation assistant at the, the university sport facility, so the gym and uh, recreation centre. And then uh, had you know, some summer work uh, throughout that time there. When I finished up uni, I, um, I, qu- I qualified myself as a ski instructor. So went over to the States and spent a winter skiing, um, trying to teach others how to do the same, and then uh, came back to New Zealand and worked in the race and events team at Coronet Peak. So 
I guess um, the theme there was always a desire to to explore different parts of of sport. Um, keep that as a you know a rough or a loose context, perhaps to what I was uh, what I was doing. Um, but the reality for me as a 22, 23 year old at that stage was that it, it really wasn't paying the bills. So um, from there, I got, I got a job as a door to door salesman selling a um, like a ventilation or heating system for residential houses, um, which was a complete shock and a really difficult experience at the time. But it actually it was my first sales experience, and it, uh, I learned an awful lot from it. And taught me a lot about what I was capable of, um, but also perseverance and persistence and uh, and the rewards that come with that. So I, uh, after a year or so there, packed my bags and jumped on a plane to the UK, as many Kiwis do at that age, and ended up having uh, five and a half years or almost six years in, in London. And, and the vast majority of that was at Wembley Stadium, working for IMG. So I know you've You've interviewed Stuart Ramsey in the past, who had a, uh, a similar story about his uh, his start that he got with IMG there. But for me, it was much the same, and um, phenomenal to, to be able to leave New Zealand, uh, go and work at a venue where I'd, uh, you know, spent my childhood watching FA Cup finals broadcast from, uh, before, you know, eventually calling time on uh, on London and uh, and moving back here to uh, to settle down with my. My now, my now wife, the, the Kiwi that I met in London, another another cliche, <laughs> um, and getting the job with with Paralympics New Zealand, which I'm sure we'll uh, we'll explore a bit more in a moment. Well, we will we'll explore it right now. Your job title is pretty self-explanatory, and uh, we are on the Inside Sponsorship podcast, so I won't get you to explain, you know, what you do because I don't think that'll give the listeners uh, much context. Instead, I'd I'd love to know mm-hmm. what you think is the best part of your job. It's a great job, and and I think that the part that I I like the most, though, is it's the ability to make a difference and to really see the direct effect that it has on our organisation and the opportunities uh, that are presented to the the athletes that represent us, really. So in many ways, that's the upside, perhaps, of working in a small organisation where you don't have multiple layers of decision-making and huge amounts of... Um, bureaucracy to deal with, but it's also um, a lot about the potential that really exists within Paralympics New Zealand for um, for us as an organisation, for sponsors to attach to, and and the the subsequent uh, effect that can really make on the athletes. With you know, and my role and a lot of our partners and sponsors are, are very close to the athletes, and they can see the effect that their uh, their support has on them. So that that's really cool, and not something I'd experienced previously. You said that 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 job working door to door selling taught you a lot about yourself and what you're capable of and and developed some perseverance. As you mentioned, you also worked in sales at IMG for about five and a half years. Big company, massive venue, sales focused role, and no doubt, you know, a fair bit of pressure around numbers and phone calls and and closing deals. What are some key things that you learnt during? that experience there at Wembley and IMG that you think holds you in good stead now? Uh, three three ideas, Daniel, that um, that stuck out for me. You're right, there was a lot of pressure. There was um, you know, a huge amount of scale to everything that we did and there was a pretty relentless calendar of events that IMG were responsible for um, ensuring 
you know, were maximised and that we made the, uh, you know, hit our targets with and, and sold out wherever possible. So um, the three things I learned though were that it, big isn't always better. So the, you know, that grass is the grass is always greener on the other side. And um, being at a huge venue like that, selling a premium product, IMG were responsible for the, um, the premium tickets and, and hospitality offerings in the stadium. And often the single biggest challenge for us was actually creating that sense of exclusivity. So um, conversely, as it sounds, you've got an you know, iconic venue, pinnacle events. But if you've got 161 corporate boxes, 17,500 hospitality seats, then um, it can be quite difficult to make each one of those clients actually feel valued and, and, and appreciate that there's a good reason they paid a premium to be there. So I, I learned that. You, you do have to um, don't always take things at, at first sight. And that in this case, a big venue came with its own set of challenges that were, um, you know, to the envy of a lot of other places, but, but still something that was quite significant for us. The other part of it was that it's a big organisation, um, and I learned there the importance and, and really, I guess, how to do so um, of communicating clearly and deliberately. Um, and that, that boils down to the relationship that I held with the clients I was responsible for, um, ensuring that there was always a, uh, you know, accurate, clear, concise message from us around upcoming opportunities and what that uh, what that entailed, but also internally and whenever we strove to improve the product offering, then uh, being able to uh, to engage all the right stakeholders across that organisation and, and make sure that people understood the, the motive and the benefit to each thing. So that I certainly learnt that through working in a large, uh, large organisation as IMG, but also within the context of, of Wembley Stadium and the FA group that are, that are there. And secondly, the challenge, and uh, you know, which leads and I guess has formed what I, I like to consider my um, my area of expertise, but that um, the retention of our of our clients who was key to the ongoing sustainability of that hospitality program, and hence we had to think strategically um, around the, the product offering, the relationship we built with each of those clients, but also creatively and continually strive to come up with new ways to do things uh, to do things better. And to ensure that the the offering that we presented as a venue remained fresh, and it wasn't just reliant on the uh, the content on the pitch or the the uh, you know the music or, or anything else that was uh, was being attracted to the stadium, but that we're constantly innovating in terms of that experience our box holders had particularly. See now at Paralympics New Zealand, how does Paralympics New Zealand verbalise its organisation's mission and focus, and then how do you take that? and relate that focus into attracting new sponsors? So our vision at Paralympics New Zealand, is, uh, Daniel, is all about excellence and equity through sport. And that's a, a pretty succinct but quite powerful statement and it sort of flows into our mission, which, which revolves around leading teams to the Paralympic Games, uh, excelling, so ensuring there's the programs and systems in place to support our, our para-athletes to win, uh, championing, so celebrating those achievements, and then advocating, um, and that's the part that is all around the equity and promoting equity through sport for for all of society, not just um, for people with a with a disability. So, I think you take that as a as a context, as a purpose of the of the organisation, and what it results in is. Um, Two, what are, what are now at least two quite clear propositions for, for any um, sponsors, and and one is the ability to align with the high performance 
success of New Zealand at a Paralympic Games. So as a nation, we're, uh, we've got a pretty proud history of success at the Paralympic Games. And in recent times, we were, we were first for medals per capita in London 2012 and Rio 2016. Um, and all of the athletes that go off to, uh, to represent New Zealand are, are faced with some pretty stringent selection criteria that they have to meet first. So they're not there just to participate. They're, uh, they're all genuine medal chances or, um, or strong future prospects. And as a result, we're, um, we, you know, frequently punch above our weight on that stage. So for a, for a sponsor to align with that success is, you know, inherently attractive. Um, but then the second part, which is perhaps the more ongoing part and the more, um, more exciting part in many ways is that alignment with the Paralympic movement and everything that stands for. So essentially using parasport as a vehicle to um, challenge perceptions of disability, promote a more diverse and inclusive society. So we, uh, in New Zealand, that kind of thinking was fairly new and, and prior to building this program that we've, we've got off the ground and quite successfully now, we didn't have any single means of communicating that to a potential sponsor. And uh, what we did, and I can't take the credit for the, uh, the creative genius behind this, but it came up with a program called the Spirit of Gold Initiative. And that's a, a platform that we align all of our commercial partnerships around. And it speaks to spirit being that community connection, that, uh, that alignment with the Paralympic movement, but also gold as a reference to our high-performance um, credentials. So it boils it down quite cleanly and, and really opens people's eyes to what the opportunities are. It sounds very attractive, as you, you said, trying to position all of that and, and focus it to make it attractive to sponsors. How has that translated? What does Paralympics New Zealand's sponsorship portfolio look like? So we launched it in 2015, uh, so a year out from the Rio Games, and uh, and progressively are building a pretty exciting, diverse portfolio. That's uh, yeah, we still have a lot of ambition to grow, but it's on a positive trajectory, and and yeah, we're proud of the uh, the great partners that we've we've managed to bring on board and, and retain. So uh, the most recent of those is um, a new major partner, which is Toyota, um, and that's a, a partly a, a product of a global relationship that Toyota reformed with the International Olympic Committee and International Paralympic Committee. But we're doing a got some exciting stuff ahead over the next uh, seven or eight years with uh, with Toyota in New Zealand as well. Uh, we've got our longest-standing partner, who are uh, Adeco, um, a global recruitment company, and there's a couple of uh, really exciting bespoke initiatives that they're um, leading with us here in New Zealand around preparing athletes for, for work and employing people with disability. Uh, and then we have um, the three partners that we actually really took that leap of faith and, and got the Spirit of Gold initiative off the ground, and that was um, the Accident Compensation Corporation, ACC, who are kind of like a public health uh, insurer, if that makes sense. It's a, a system that's fairly unique to New Zealand, as I understand it, but they're all about encouraging Kiwis to have healthy, active lifestyles, um, and there's a clear relevance to pe- supporting the recovery of, uh, of people that suffer a serious injury. Um and then we have uh, Mondelay, better known as, as Cadbury, and also a company called Sanford, who are one of New Zealand's oldest, um, and they occupy a large part of New Zealand's uh, seafood fishing quota. Um, so quite an interesting business and quite different, and, and sponsorship isn't saying they've really uh, got behind, but our focus with them is a very uh, solid foundation in the community and engaging what for them is quite a disparate workforce with people away on fishing boats for long periods of time and having processing plants in isolated regions of New Zealand. So 
yeah, quite a different um, portfolio. And then underneath that, we have a range, as all, all sporting organisations do, of suppliers. And you know, whilst their support is often more value and kind rather than uh, than real dollars, um, the importance of them shouldn't be underestimated because that um, you know it still makes a big difference to the bottom line. And we've we've actually spent a lot of time last year um, tidying that up and realigning it to um, to ensure we're well resourced and, and well set up as we approach the um, the Tokyo 2020 Paralympic Games. And in managing all of that, what's your relationship with the New Zealand Olympic Committee? Do you work at all on the sponsorship front with them, or are you a hundred percent, you know, just doing things by yourself? Um, I guess the first point is that we are separate entities, so it's not um, not always accurately understood. So the, the international structure, where you have an international Olympic Committee and the International Paralympic Committee, um, they are completely separate, and uh, I guess. Way that flows through to us as a national Paralympic committee means that we're a, we're our own, um, you know, our own organisation uh, with our own commercial program that there isn't any sort of crossover with. That said, we do work with the uh, the NZOC on a number of levels. So we're, the Paralympic Games next week are um, taking place in many of the same venues, the exact same place as the Olympics did, and hence there's a lot of cross sharing and learning between the, our operations teams and, and event managers, uh, coaches, and, and the like. Um, and also uh, on the commercial side, um, a big change recently has been bringing Toyota on because uh, at the same time, they also took out the partnership with the New Zealand Olympic Committee. So that's the, uh, the first time in recent history that we've got a, you know, a major partner in common um, and it's really uh, added a whole new dimension and we're really enjoying working together on that because um, Toyota are committed to, to supporting us, us both to, to equal levels here in New Zealand. Um, and trying to integrate the two in terms of their messaging and uh, and some of the activation that that we'll hopefully see over the coming years. So, yeah, separate but um, a good working relationship and um, and lots of common links at, at all levels of our organisation. You mentioned earlier the the refocusing and the launch in 2015 in New Zealand. There's been a lot of positive commentary about the success of that program since its launch in 2015. What do you think's been the real key to that. Oh, I've got to, Daniel. I've got to give a quick shout out to um, to our commercial and marketing director, Rachel Froggett. So, um, I think that's uh, she's the brainchild behind uh, the Spirit of Gold initiative, and that's the, the the program that's really kind of you know captured that success and enabled it. Um, the background being that in 2013, there was a um, the Paralympics New Zealand board undertook a, a body of research. Um, or commissioned a, a body of research that revealed that we as an organisation would very well uh, had high levels of awareness in New Zealand but we weren't particularly well understood and, and what that meant was that people would say oh yeah great you know Paralympics New Zealand that's cool and then that was it they weren't compelled to act there wasn't engagement from donors uh, from yeah, people who might uh, from, through events and fundraising activity um, and there's certainly very limited engagement with the business community. So coming up with the Spirit of Gold initiative, as I talked about before, was um, the work of Rachel and, and uh, many of the other team that, that preceded me as well. But the ethos around that was about developing a stream of Paralympics New Zealand-led communications and content that communicates our story better and explains to everyone what we stand for. And, and where I come in is ensuring that that translates through to our partners um, and that we really embrace them. So 
basically, I think a lot of you know a common trap that a lot of not-for-profit sporting organisations fall into is you you end up taking that revenue from your existing partners for granted. Um, and whilst the commercial team will be very aware of it, the rest of the organisation may not. And and a big part of our ethos and a big key to our success has been bringing the whole of PNZ on that journey. So. And, you know, a lot of cross-sharing of information, a lot of events that coaches and um, high-performance directors and similar are invited to and included in um, and exposed to our partners in the same way that we are so that the importance of that commercial component is uh, is never misunderstood. Um, and I think, secondly, we've been lucky to some extent, Daniel, with the partners that we have attracted. There, um, I mentioned before, but particularly ACC, Cadbury, Sanford, who who took that leap of faith and backed a new program, something that um, you know wasn't proven and uh, and was purely a, a vision at the time. So for them to come on and then the the work that we've led with them over the last couple of years to be recognised um, by winning the the commercial partnerships category at the 2017 Sport and Rec Awards, um, I think that's a you know a pretty good marker to the success of it and um, and certainly helps us. With, Sort of in a testimonial capacity, at least as we uh, as we go forward and attract new uh, new organisations on board as well. I think that's a really interesting and uh, valid point you make about some parts of the organisation may take existing revenue for granted, and it sounds as though you've had a bit of success in taking you know the, the wider organisation, not just the commercial team, on the journey with you and sooner or later you've mentioned those sponsors already but retention is always a a key driver for success so once you've secured those sponsors or you've you've helped shift their focus with the relaunch of the program is there a specific philosophy you apply or are there any key steps you make sure you go through to help ensure you do retain them yes there is and um in truth this is the um Part of a topic I, I presented around at the, uh, the sports sponsorship summit here in Auckland last year, and um, it's a philosophy that I again I, I learnt in the UK with the, the work um, within the Club Wembley program at, in, in, with IMG, um, and it was one of the main attractions for me when I interviewed for the uh, Paralympics New Zealand role. I could see that um, the CEO and commercial director and, and the other uh, people I interacted with were very aligned in, in their way of thinking as well. So. For me, it's retention of, of of clients in any capacity. Is I mean, it's it ultimately it boils down to ensuring that they um, they see and they understand the value of their investment, but also um, they can see that future opportunity. You know, they want every every organisation that invests wants to know that there's exciting things continuing to come and that there's a pathway forward and a clear plan for how that's going to be rolled out. So. From my point of view, I, I focus it on, on five key practical aspects in terms of how I work with partners and what I seek to achieve. And, and the first of those is about explaining the product or service, making, you know, don't take that assumption that the, you know, the world that I work in is commonly understood by our partners. It's, you know, it's, it's often not and parasport and all the complexity of, of, uh, of how we, um, what our athletes do, how they compete and their schedules and what the opportunities for, for sponsors to align with that are, um, shouldn't be taken for granted. And even look, simple things about, you know, how do you talk to, um, and interact with people who have a disability and, you know, what, what can I say? What can't I say? Um, those are all things that, um, you can easily, uh, easily be barriers. So, um, making sure that understanding is there and, and integrating, um, 
your communication throughout so that people can uh, can pick that up and learn it. I try really hard to make it easy. Um, you know, don't don't overcomplicate things. Keep it simple, um, and ensure that the the key people at those organisations uh, you build a really strong relationship with, um, and across the board as well. So, you know, most brands will have a, a marketing team or a sponsorship manager or, or similar, but they're only uh, often in my eyes only one component of that of that relationship. And, and yes, they're the, the gatekeeper and the intermediary, but. If you're to grow a partnership, if you're to, to develop that relationship, you also need to um, constantly be on the eye out for other people from that organisation that you might meet or cross paths with, other opportunities where you see that um, that organisation doing something and and, uh, and can you know hit them up and suggest perhaps that they integrate their Paralympics relationship into that event, etc. Always trying to broaden the, um, the sort of the scope of the, the partnership. Um, I think. The fourth, fourth point was around guidance, helping, um, you know, making it really obvious around what the opportunity is, how to do it, when to do it, what to do, um, but also being prepared to offer um, a stern word and perhaps a little bit of, uh, you know, kick up the backside for a better <laughs> expression if, uh, if you can see, that, see the warning bells and, and notice that the partnership isn't progressing as it should, you know, if that that partner or sponsor isn't utilising the, the rights and benefits that are available to them, then, you know, you can ignore it and keep quiet or you can raise it as an issue right at the outset. And, and if you do that appropriately, then often they'll, uh, they'll thank you for that as well because um, it's, it's never their intent. It's just uh, the reality sometimes is that you need to continually breathe life into these things. And, and closely related to that is, and it's all part of the same ethos, but keeping, as a rights holder, keeping your organisation front of mind. So... It's very rare the, on the sponsor's side for them to employ a person who's 100% focused on activating a particular single partnership. You know, often it's a, a function that sits within a marketing or a, uh, an HR team, for instance, um, and they often have multiple rights holders and projects to work across. So for us uh, and for you know, me personally in my role, I'm always chipping away at it, staying in contact, reminding them of Paralympic New Zealand, making sure that we're, um, you know, we're there and they're thinking about us because otherwise it can, it can drift and, and, you know, if you do that for too long, it becomes hard to justify um, keeping those partners when, when that conversation comes around. You explained that you, as an organisation, recognised that there wasn't huge engagement and understanding with Parasport and Paralympics New Zealand and the community. So within the refocus and the launch, what sort of activities or initiatives do you run to help engage and, and educate the community and how do you involve sponsors in those? So there's um, two. I mean, the Spirit of Gold uh, initiative, is, the whole ethos is that it's a, it's a stream of activity that is Paralympics New Zealand-led. So first and foremost, we want to make it uh, easy for our sponsors to engage with us by providing them with ongoing opportunities that are really easy for them to activate. Um, There's a number of examples, but things like marking the key milestones in the build-up to the Paralympic Games, selection announcements, 100 days to go, that sort of thing. Um, there's a couple that stand out that, that are unique to the Spirit of Gold initiative. One is a, uh, a tour that we did in, in 2016 uh, leading up to the Paralympic Games, and that was a uh, we commissioned a series of portraits of our most um, well-known Paralympians, and in recognition of the fact that they weren't going to be around because they were busy training and they couldn't take time time out of their uh, their immediate preparations prior to Rio, 
um, we had these portraits of them painted and instead took those around the country. And we did a series of events with the local Chamber of Commerces and, and a number of towns around New Zealand. And in the end, stopped at 105 locations. And our partners directly hosted those portraits and we were able to facilitate the occasional athlete appearance and so forth to go along with those. Um, as a way of promoting awareness and engaging local communities in the, in the Paralympic Games and building that sort of base level of understanding. So that was uh, hugely successful. We did it um, we did it on a shoestring, but um, just, you know it started off with a, a backbone of events that we designed, and then we worked with each of our partners to build bespoke programs for the, and opportunities for them off the back of it. Um, and like I say, 105 visits over six months really was uh, was unprecedented for us in New Zealand, and it, and it did a huge amount to um, to change how we were understood and perceived in the community. Um, and then I guess the second part of your question around um, involving sponsors, the other the other obvious way is that we build bespoke programs for them. So the best example of that is our um, our partnership with ACC. I mentioned earlier that it was um, it's about encouraging participation in sport, encouraging. Um, Kiwis of, of all descriptions to live healthy, active lifestyles. Um, and we, we've had a very successful program called the ACC Paralympics New Zealand Open Days, which um, bring together on a regional level local sport providers and, sh- and along with our Paralympians and medalists, etc., we showcase para-sport in that community and encourage the public to come along and, and learn about the opportunities that are available to them and hopefully leave motivated to take that first step and get into sport. So, you know, for us, that ticks a huge box of growing the base and, and growing our community understanding and presence. Um, for ACC, it's, uh, it's very much aligned to their objectives as well. So that's been a quite a, you know, probably the most successful example of a, of a partner-led activity that is bespoke, but um, there's, there's a whole heap of untapped potential that we see with um, our existing partners and any, uh, any new organisations that are looking to do similar things. You mentioned about the uh, the activation around the the portraits, and that that was in the past. With the team heading off soon, what sorts of sponsor activations and engagements have you recently run? Or I know we're getting close, and people are flying out in the next couple of days, or, or you yeah. will run in the lead up. Well, but the I mean, first point is that the team have, have already gone. They're, they're long gone, actually. They uh, they mostly left New Zealand in November because. They need to train in the Northern Hemisphere winter leading up to, of course. to the Winter Paralympics. So uh, we farewelled them in early November with a, a large uh, send-off event at Government House in Auckland, which was hosted by New Zealand's Governor-General. And again, was a great uh, opportunity for PNZ to lead something that all of our partners, uh, stakeholders, people that have made significant contributions to those uh, winter campaigns were invited to. Um, and around that opportunity, because we had all the athletes in one place for a for a day or two, we were able to do a lot of filming with uh, those athletes, and that content has all been made available to our partners as well for um, for them to develop into internal and social media uh, video and, and, and digital campaigns and, and content that hopefully we'll see a bit of publicly, but certainly a lot of internally from their side over the next um, next couple of weeks. Um, new for us with Toyota on board, they've uh, taken out a, a broadcast. Sponsorship as well, so um, they've partnered with TVNZ to make the uh, the free-to-air broadcast back into New Zealand possible, 
Um, and that's huge because it, it means that all Kiwis will get the chance to interact with the games and watch it on free-to-air television, which has a far greater reach than, than the, the pay broadcaster does, obviously. Um, and it's also Toyota's first true sort of public engagement where they'll be showcasing their support of, of um, Paralympic sport and, and us as an organisation. So that, that's pretty exciting. ACC have got a couple more uh, of these open days planned, so late March in Tauranga and then down in the, the South Island of New Zealand in Dunedin in early April. So they coincide just a couple of days after the uh, the team return, and it will be the first chance for the New Zealand public to um, to, to hopefully meet meet a couple of our uh, Pyeongchang 2018 medalists. If I if I don't jinx things by saying that. <laughs> um, and then, uh, yeah, all our other partners, so um, Cadbury, Sanford, um, Adeco, have a variety of initiatives. Truthfully, a lot of that is a little bit more internal and uh, stakeholder-focused rather than the, the kind of above-the-line external-facing um, activations that perhaps some of them did around Rio. Um, I think that's a reflection on the, the, the probably the New Zealand public sentiment in terms of it's uh, engagement with the winter Paralympic Games. It's um, it's the middle of summer here, and uh, and people aren't um, you know they're they're in tune to it now because the Olympics have just concluded, and that was a very successful game for New Zealand. Um, but a month ago, you know, half the country wouldn't have known it was on. So it has been a slightly slower build up, but I think we'll see some pretty exciting stuff now that um, now that's almost upon us. Most developed sponsorship markets are crowded and New Zealand is definitely no different you've got I'm not even sure this is a strong enough phrase but a, a rugby union <laughs> mad market absolutely crazy about uh, rugby union netball's obviously very strong you've got a new nationally focused competition there so that's putting pressure on the sponsorship market you've got the long established New Zealand Warriors in the rugby league and you've, you've obviously got uh, cricket and you've got a plethora of other sports like most developed uh countries do how do you go about setting yourself apart and and where do you focus in terms of attracting sponsors because you don't just go back to the same well that everybody else does those those major high profile sports with you know the 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 pay tv stations in sky or vodafone or nzme how do you how do you set yourself apart yeah it's interesting because i agree with everything you just said it's a crowded Absolutely, a crowded market, um, and you know there's a never-ending or growing number of sporting organisations that aspire to, to, to you know achieve the same commercial success as, as, as you know, fortunately, Touchwood we have in recent times. So, I think um, it is challenging. But the other the other part to it is that we we're an entirely different proposition altogether. I mean, um, perhaps not dissimilar in, to the Olympic Committee in this regard, but we've got. You know, in contrast to your typical um, sporting organisation, rugby or netball, Warriors, like you just mentioned, um, we've got no tickets for hospitality to sell. We we don't have naming rights to a venue that we can, uh, you know, we cannot make available to a sponsor. There's no perimeter advertising, obviously. Um, the international rules around a Paralympic Games um, prevent us from carrying any sponsor um, commercial logos onto uniform. Um, you know, to give that exposure, organic exposure that comes from a broadcast or uh, or media coverage of a, of a game. So it's a pretty different proposition right from the outset. And, and in truth, Daniel, that actually opens quite a lot of doors for us because it, it means that straight away we're not just talking about the same things that, that brands have been presented before. Um, and what we really do is focus on what makes us unique. And, and for us, that's our, uh, first and foremost, it's our athletes uh, and their stories, which are... Um, Often, you know, the 
in, in many ways, and this isn't a, a sob story by any stretch, but the the hardship and the challenges that many Paralympians overcome just to to, to get to that elite level and to um, to to get through their day to day lives in some cases, that is such a powerful story that it, it often supersedes some of their athletic achievement as well. And if you can, uh, if you're lucky enough to have a a whole host of role models as we do that have got a very powerful emotive story behind them, plus the, uh, the you know, they're, they're one of the best in the world at their chosen discipline, um, then that's pretty powerful. And the second thing is that real focus on the uh, the power of the, the Paralympic movement, which is, again, unique to us as a National Paralympic Committee. So that, that uh, diversity and social inclusion, they're pretty hot topics in the corporate landscape of New Zealand at the moment. Um, a lot of talk about uh, about it in the media and politics uh, in terms of companies trying to come up with strategies that make them uh, more attractive uh, to a changing labour market um, and making them uh, you know be seen to do the best thing as well. So we get quite a bit of traction at the moment uh, with current and uh, and potential sponsors who are looking for ways to um, tangibly implement. Um, policies or directives aimed at making them more inclusive, more diverse, more um, more aligned with a, a changing New Zealand, uh, essentially. So, yeah, so I guess those those two things are where we stand apart. But um, that's interesting because we we don't really compare ourselves to a lot of the more uh, traditional sports and. Uh, in many ways anyway. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting comment you made there. I wasn't, when I thought about the question, I wasn't really sure where you might go with the answer. And as you rightly explained, you don't have uh, hospitality and, and tickets and things like that that you can sell. So you're forced to move away from what would probably be coined or, or classed as, you know, your, your stock standard benefits that you can offer sponsors and I think I'm making this comment more for the listeners rather than for your validation Ian but I think if a lot of you know for want of a better phrase tier one or or traditional or really high profile sports sat down in their offices got the post-it notes out got the whiteboard happening and said if we stripped away all those traditional tickets hospitality logos where would we focus because yes they have a place but those things that you have to focus on create such an emotional connection with the sponsor and and that has really powerful implications for the activation and the success of of the sponsorship so great answer really insightful in that uh answer you alluded to you know you can't have logos on uniforms because of the uh the, the restrictions that are in place and most of us working in the industry have uh, heard the stories about the strict sponsorship guidelines that the IOC puts in place and the industry has to work in and often those stories are from a, a brand's perspective about what brands can and can't do so much you're obviously governed by the international paralympic oh sorry paralympic committee uh, are they still really tight like that what can you tell us about them from your side of the fence yeah they are um there's actually a I mean, part of it is that there's a very um, well, I was going to say complicated, but it's it's not really when you boil when you boil it down, but it's not very well understood. But there's a marketing accord between the International Olympic Committee and the International Paralympic Committee, and what that um, what that means is that any uh, sponsors that exist at a global level with the International Olympic Committee. Uh, or the International Paralympic Committee 
uh, brands and sponsor categories, I guess, uh, partner categories that we also need to protect. So, um, you know, I guess a good example of that is um, yeah, Coca-Cola, say. So they're a, um, an International Olympic Committee partner, um, meaning that as a National Paralympic Committee who's governed by the International Paralympic Committee, we are also unable to engage a uh, prospective partner in that category. So we couldn't, for instance, without an exception being granted, which would, uh, I think, be pretty lot unlikely in this, given sort of Coca-Cola's penetration go globally, we're unable to partner with the likes of Pepsi or Powerade or, uh, or any kind of uh, drinks brand, um, anything that, that falls into the definition of Coca-Cola's partnership with the IOC. So that was a quirk that I, I sort of struggled with on the, from this side of the fence initially because we as a National Paralympic Committee don't receive any compensation for that. It's just a category that's blocked and, um, and hence we have to, uh, to sort of map all those out and then, uh, and then spot the gaps. And, and the good side is that there is plenty of gaps still. Um, and when you look at it and the reasons for, for that, I think overall it's a pretty logical and fair system. Um, you know, the good side, the upside for us is that it's the same system that actually protects our partners and domestically in New Zealand at least ensures that they're the only organisations that get to promote their support of, uh, of us as an MCC or the New Zealand Paralympic Games team during a Paralympic Games. So they have a, um, you may be familiar, I'm sure many of the listeners are familiar with the blackout period that exists um, immediately either side of a, an Olympic and during an Olympic or Paralympic Games. And, uh, and it's that sort of framework that all ties things together and prevents any, um, not, you know, personal partners of athletes or, uh, organizations that don't have any association with the Paralympic Games from, um, from celebrating those achievements or, uh, claiming an association to it. So, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one. Um, the good news, I think, is that there's a, there's a growing kind of willingness from the corporate sector to support the, the Paralympic sport as much as Olympic sport. And I mentioned earlier, but the Toyota deal is the actual, the first global one that, that does that. So, um, you know, in contrast to the Coca-Cola example, that actually includes a uh, direct contribution to all the national Paralympic committees around the world. And, uh, and that's the, sort of the, the beginning and the basis for the relationship we've built with Toyota New Zealand as well. One of the great things about a Games is that it thrusts athletes into the spotlight, and especially in a home country when a lot of the time the majority of them don't mostly enjoy much of a profile there's only a small amount of olympic and paralympic athletes that enjoy high profiles sort of month in month out year in year out and in between games but it isn't like the week in weekend grind of a, a team sport or competition where engagement is sustained for i don't know anywhere between 15 to 25 weeks does that affect your sponsorship attraction and management at all? Yeah, it does, Daniel. To be honest, absolutely. That's one of our uh, one of our biggest challenges we have to overcome. And in, in, uh, in conversation with any existing or potential sponsor, I think that you know that peak and trough kind of mentality of a you know a games being every four years. Um, it, but it, you know, it's closely aligned to what I, what we spoke about a few moments ago, and the, and the fact that for us. Our answer to that is to develop a program of content, that, you know, namely the, the Spirit of Gold initiative that isn't uh, directly associated with competition and high performance, um, and and you know isn't focused on those key pinnacle events all the time, but is about our ongoing um, 
values and, and you know ways that we can contribute to a to an organisation, the things we can control. So, you know, in reality, if you uh, if you organise a bespoke um, event with a Paralympian who uh, who speaks to your staff, who turns up to have a photo and gives everyone the chance to, to wear a, a Paralympic gold medal, and you hear their story and you um, you improve your, your staff engagement tenfold, then you know, that can be just as inspirational two years out from or three years out from a Paralympic Games as it can be immediately afterwards. And um, and that's I guess the, the kind of the answer, but ultimately um, I'd be uh, I'd be making it sound a little bit too rosy if I didn't admit that was a, uh, still a significant <laughs> challenge for us. <laughs> and, and I think it links back to that point that that's what you need to focus on, or and what you do focus on successfully, rather than those sports or competitions that do have long engagement periods, because traditionally they focus on the branding, the advertising, the ticketing, the hospitality. So I think that's probably a you know maybe byproduct is the wrong phrase, but it, it is definitely something that you you focus on, and as I said, focus on yeah. well, and and it obviously attracts people uh, to the stories and creates that emotional attraction. I agree, and it's. Um, I mean, everyone has an off-season, right? So I'm sure that you know any football club or rugby club, whatever, would have to uh, would face the same challenge. We were faced with it at Wembley at the end of a end of a football season when there was a um, you know if we didn't have a strong concert calendar for the summer, then we were asked the same questions about you know, hang on, it's three or four months to our next event. So it's a you know it's a slightly longer period and a, perhaps a bigger scale of a challenge for us. Um, yeah, but uh, like you say, you, you focus on the bits you can control, and uh, and actually, when you deep dive into it, it's those parts that can really add the value to, to the to the opportunity as well. Here, here. What are some of the common challenges you have in managing or guiding the, the individual athletes who who go out and look to attract? their own sponsorships in terms of either the, the challenge that you have either helping them or educating them or even just trying to make sure that it aligns well with Paralympics New Zealand? Uh, I think the, probably the biggest challenge for a lot of our Paralympic athletes is, it, is it's they don't really know their own value um, and perhaps how to communicate that. So there's not a lot of precedent for them having a, attracted personal partners. I mean, there's a, there's a handful in New Zealand, uh, many quite well-known names who, who have, and they've done that successfully. I mean, I guess globally everyone knows Sophie Pascoe and, and Liam Malone more recently. Um, but underneath that, a lot, of, uh, a lot of the athletes are still very new to, to that commercial opportunity. And I think the big, you know, there's a challenge there around ensuring the athletes are getting a fair deal but also, ultimately, we have to be true to what our core purpose is. And, and as much as we want our athletes to do well individually, it's our responsibility to uh, prepare and adequately resource teams to the Paralympic Games. And hence, we, we need that investment to be coming directly into Paralympics New Zealand and, uh, and in ensuring that there's the coaches, the structures, the uh, you know, all the support network that goes with it so that those athletes have, a, have the best possible chance of success on when they come to compete. So I think it's probably um, an ongoing challenge there around balancing that protection um, and and making ourselves attractive to PNZ sponsors um, with that desire to, to get the best for each individual athlete and help them progress as well. There's, um, well, I don't know, a couple of examples. Of, do you want me to share a quick example on that? Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. There's, there's one, one good and one bad that I thought of because I've, it's probably not a world that's uh, all that obvious to everyone all the time, but 
great example. So Sophie Pascoe, New Zealand's most successful Paralympian, um, and she has um, got quite a well-established personal brand that, that uh, a number of organisations get behind. Uh, last year, a very high-profile in New Zealand um, example, one that I had a keen eye for given my previous work experience, was uh, was Rebel Sport and a campaign that they, uh, an ongoing campaign they're running around what's your why, and they sort of profile a number of ambassadors, uh, successful sports people in New Zealand and, and really explore what motivates them. So Rebel Sport are a personal partner of, uh, of Sophie. They make no direct contribution to us. But in the, in the spirit of helping Sophie and also with an acknowledgement that all publicity is, is good and awareness is good, particularly in a non-games year, we work very closely with Rebel Sport and their creative agencies to, um, to, to work through all the necessary IP protection and approvals process for their commercial um, that they ran on TV and, and online here in New Zealand. So in, in the end, the end product didn't actually carry any of Paralympics New Zealand IP. It didn't conflict at all with the rights and benefits that we grant the organisations that, that sponsor and partner with us. Um, but it, it worked for Sophie and it also, for the general public, for all intents and purposes, it was a great showcase of Paralympic sport and, and, the, and the story behind those athletes. So that's an example where an athlete who has the right sort of management around them um, and the right kind of advice and guidance and, and who are, you know, an organisation that's willing to engage um, can make it work really well. Uh, on the flip side of the coin, then we had an example recently with an organisation that approached us wanting um, to secure the services of an athlete, a para-athlete, to help them launch a new product. Um, and they, all they were prepared to do was offer a very, uh, what we felt was pretty embarrassing, small-figure sum considering who they were to the individual athlete. And, uh, and their attitude was that they were doing us a favour and doing the athlete um, doing the athlete a favour by, by giving them a, a, a profile. Wow. So, you know, that's, uh, that was kind of the other side of the coin. And we do, um, I guess, increasingly is the awareness and, and potential within parasport sort of, you know, becomes more readily understood. We increasingly get those types of inquiries as well. And um, ultimately, that's the athlete's decision. Um, and fortunately, uh, well, from our point of view in this case, the athlete turned that one down. But uh, there's still some, some people that take that view of it. Mm. A good friend of Sponsor and a keen listener of the podcast is Vicky Saunders from the Sponsorship Consultants. And I was talking to her the other day, mentioned that... <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> she's got a tough question for you. So she, I, I mentioned you were going to be on the show. She said, can I ask him a question? I said, absolutely. And her question is, do you think there is a way that a large organisation such as Paralympics New Zealand can set up a, a program that gives individual athletes experience and skills in giving back to sponsors in a way that makes them more attractive to the individual sponsors, kind of like uh, a work experience, so that they get to develop the skills of a sponsored athlete. I need to be careful with my answer here, Daniel, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> Vicky's, Vicky's listening. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yes, absolutely. Of course there is. Um, and I'm... I'm I think as long as, as an organisation, we had the right resources available to, to adequately and appropriately support that, and we were able to engage the right network of stakeholders as well. And in New Zealand, the sporting system is such that we're not the only entity that's, sponsor, that's responsible for um, you know, achieving the success of our Paralympic athletes at the Games. We're, we're fortunate to have High Performance Sport New Zealand, who we work very closely with, um, and a whole network of service providers, um, sports psychologists, nutrition, 
physios, etc., who help our athletes day to day, week to week with their training schedules. And there's actually a team uh, who we already work with in that department around a specific initiative with a deco called the Athlete Career Program. And that's um, that's designed to help athletes uh, develop the skills and uh, and resources, CVs, etc., that are necessary for them to um, adequately transition from an athletic career into a professional career to get a job once they uh, once they finish competing, or perhaps during if they're uh, if they're part time or taking a bit uh, taking a bit of a break for for a period. So. I think that's a good precedent, and um, and to Vicky, yes, absolutely. If, uh, if we could find the right way to do it, then I think that would be an awesome thing to be able to do for our athletes. Probably not so much in, in recent games, but in many games gone past, social media hasn't played a, a major role, and so events like the Paralympics have struggled for the public's attention and, and probably contributed to what your research found about a, a lack of engagement and, and understanding on the on the public's part about para-sport. Social media gives everyone a boost, but can you walk us through what your general approach to social media and sponsorship is? Yeah, I can, and it's something we're learning and, and evolving all the time as well, Daniel, because it's, it's changing so quickly and it's in, incredibly hard to get that cut, cut through on a consistent basis. Um, our philosophy and our, our overarching sort of approach to it is to ensure we're providing our partners with as much content as possible um, and and really have their interests in mind as well when we're negotiating access to particular events, competitions, uh, you know, the image rights from them, for instance. So the uh, you know our athletes albeit there's a Paralympic Games summer and winter every two years in between times they're frequently heading off to uh, to world championships world cup events international competition and there's a hell of a lot of really strong content within that uh, that is just completely untapped and and our partners are um, are frequently provided with updates and opportunities and sent a, a schedule well in advance that maps out when those events occur, are occurring and when there might be opportunities for them to leverage that. So a lot of that does, uh, and does translate into social media because, you know, obviously you can achieve a lot with a very minimal budget um, and partners are able to um, to create a bit of exclusivity for themselves by being the only, um, only organisations who get that insight from us at least. Um, I mentioned earlier we did the athlete filming before the team left New Zealand so that, you know, we've... Uh, an acknowledgement of the fact that it was going to be hard to access athletes during the Paralympic Games and in the months prior we you know mid last year started talking to partners about what their plans were for Pyeongchang and how they were going to activate that on social media and internally and and develop this sort of content content generation session for them that we uh, we did in November before the team departed so uh, I think the socially that's uh, it is obviously all about that genuine content there's a lot there and I don't think we've really um, we probably haven't done a, a with our partners, we probably haven't done a lot more than, than scratch the surface. It was a really good example where Sanford, um, you know, aligned with their uh, their operation as a seafood company, um, ran a, a trivia competition on their social media account, um, profiling a number of the Paralympians during Rio, and then off- offering the prize of coming along to a, a seafood school cooking class, which is one of their core products that they they offer to the public here in New Zealand, and uh, and learning to cook alongside a Paralympian. So that was a kind of a nice link that, that sort of tied all those things together. Um, and Mondelay Cadbury did the uh, did a, uh, a similar engagement that was very successful where they encouraged New Zealanders uh, to leave messages of support for the Paralympic team through their social media channels, through a bespoke website that they built. 
and then actually collated those and printed them into hard copy books that they presented to the athletes before they departed for Rio. So, yeah, we've certainly seen some good ones, but um, it's a challenging space, right? Everyone's uh, everyone's looking to achieve similar things, as you say, with your, your question around, you know, it gives everyone a boost, but it can also be a, um, a challenging landscape to build real value into sometimes. So we've spoken a, little, a fair bit about uh, the Winter Paralympics because it's front and centre of our, our mind and attention right now. But what about the Parasports program at the Gold Coast 2018 Commonwealth Games kicking off less than a month <laughs> after the Winter Paralympics? How hectic is this period for you? Is it a bit stressful or is it just awesome, an awesome time to have the athletes in the spotlight, spotlight for an extended period? I mean, how do you even have time for this interview, Ian? As soon as you ask, Daniel, I think I'll have a, um, a few people wondering where I've been for the last hour or so when I, <laughs> I get back to my emails in a moment. But um, no, look, truthfully, we actually don't deliver the, the Commonwealth Games campaign in New Zealand. So um, I don't know how this compares globally, but the, the structure is that there's a Commonwealth Games Federation, which is actually, um, for all intents and purposes, the New Zealand Olympic Committee. And the Commonwealth Games differ slightly in that they're fully integrated. So uh, para-athletes compete alongside able-bodied athletes um, in the sense that the events are run during the same period in the same venues, not two weeks after, as is the case of the Paralympic Games. So we uh, we selected and nominated some of our athletes, or sorry, nominated and some of those athletes were uh, subsequently selected to the uh, New Zealand Commonwealth Games team, and it's going to be awesome to have them in the spotlight for that extended period like you talk about. And obviously it's a summer event, so it's a different group of athletes and it's um, it's not every um, every day that they get that kind of media coverage and so forth. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be pretty exciting. It is for us and we'll be supporting it, um, supporting their results and, and you know, uh, advocating for, uh, for New Zealand to get behind them. It's going to be interesting to see. I think having the, the games just across the ditch on the, on the Gold Coast there will be pretty awesome for the New Zealand public as well. Ian, amazing athletes, and we, we really do look forward to, to following the New Zealand team and cheering for them in South Korea. Fingers crossed for two medals, maybe even one more. Great chat, and if people want to get in touch with you or find out more about Paralympics New Zealand, what can they do? Yeah, uh, contact me by email, um, which I, is isargent, S-A-R-G-E-A-N-T, at paralympics.org. Dot nz uh, or link, look me up on LinkedIn. Um, I, I try and pride myself on responding to uh, to all messages and all now all emails. And as you've probably gathered from the length of some of my answers, I, I do like a chat. So um, <laughs> get in touch. Very good. And with all good podcasts, we'll have uh, links to Ian's LinkedIn profile and his email in the show notes. Ian Sargent, commercial partnerships manager. Thank you so much for taking us inside Paralympics New Zealand. Thanks, Daniel. Absolute pleasure. Cheers. Yes, I'm sure that when faced with challenging circumstances, we all like to think that we'd come up with a great approach. Maybe, maybe not. But why do we have to wait? How much untapped or missed opportunity lies in your organisation because you haven't worked through some tough hypotheticals like, what if we didn't have X inventory? Or what if our annual calendar looked different? I think it would be a worthwhile exercise for a lot of rights holders. Thanks again to Ian. Great chat. Really enjoyed it. And a reminder that you can find links to Paralympics New Zealand and Ian's LinkedIn profile and his email address in the show notes at sponsor.net. 
Thanks again for tuning into the show. Like I said in the opening, if you'd like a shout out, then be sure to get in contact. We love getting little messages from you just saying hi. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at sponserve. And if you want to connect with our MD, Mark Thompson, you can email him on mark at sponserve.net or find him also on LinkedIn. Don't forget that you can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Sponserve. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs, and resources, head to Sponserve.net or search for Sponserve on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn.